You're listening to All Things Video, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Amir Zanozi, co-founder and president of Zoomf. Amir, welcome to the show. James, thanks for having me. Uh, your radio voice is impeccable. I, I just got to start off by saying that, like you dial it up but like on that perfect notch. I, I'm really excited to be here. Bring the average of all your guests down by having me, but proud and honored to be here for sure. Yeah, so humble. I love it, Amir. Thanks so much. And you got the pro podcast set up there. I love it. Looking good. I know you're a former podcaster yourself, so you've got a lot of experience around the microphone. Thank you. I, I, I tried to do what you have achieved. It is much harder than it looks. So credit to you for sure. And uh, you're just happy to use this for something not than as like a regular Zoom meeting, like an actual podcast. So there we go. Uh, yeah, I like Pleasure's it. mine, sir. So yeah. Amir, how did you get your start in media and entertainment? Yeah, uh, you know, it all happened on Craigslist. No, uh, it was, uh, you know, it's, 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 where I and I'm putting a you know an age around myself you know so some people will get this but my my love for all of this started with AIM and just like you know the buddy list and the away message there was something addictive about like how can I get people to interact with me with what my away message was and it that became a love with uh, my my background from school which was psychology and I'd argue all of this is you know more psychology than it is technology. And, but it wasn't a career, you know, when, when I was all into this, like it was, I was freelancing, I was doing stuff on the side from senators and I won't tell you who, but to pest control, to, you know, to, to caterers, whoever would allow me to, you know, take over their social and give me money for it. And, uh, you know, eventually found an opportunity at a program at George, uh, Georgetown called, you know, communication culture and technology. And every single article I wrote about was social media. And, you know, it was uh, fate had it where there was an opportunity where I, I met some people um, at an agency that was doing stuff for the State Department. And that's really where I got my official gig, you know, kind of doing it. But before that, it was just, you know, freelancing and just obsessed with how I could put words together and get a reaction that would be different in different ways. Yeah. And I guess we should mention you're in D.C., right? I am in DC. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a very interesting time to be here for sure. I bet. Uh, and uh, but uh, yeah, yep. So you know, always uh, born and raised in Northern Virginia. Um, outside of here, I just say DC. You know, we're also close to between here and Maryland. And um, what a lot of people don't know, James, is like this is the federal Silicon Valley. There's more servers out here uh it's more around like government work mm -hmm. and everyone in this area at some point has worked with federal work at some point so that's where we got our start today you know with uh and would have to buy you a beer and a long story to get to how i got into sports and entertainment but now primarily work with sports and entertainment yeah that's incredible very cool yeah. so you're fascinated with social media from the outset you're in this incredible program at georgetown that combines technology and culture and you have these kind of interesting opportunities to research uh, and also reflect the work that you're doing in social through that that study program um, then you kind of go into social media management right first at an interactive agency creative two and then you worked at metrostar system so you know spanning this career you've had in social media before we get to the zoom stuff how have you seen social media transform and evolve over the past decade? Yeah, no, that's that's a fantastic question and, and great research for sure. That the Creative 2 stuff was like some of the freelancing stuff that we that I was doing at the time and it was exciting. Um, and, you know, I didn't even have the grades to get into the Georgetown program. I had to talk my way in. I used to uh, procure music illegally, uh, <laughs> if you will. And, uh, but we, we were like the number six uh, top downloaded music uh, pirating website. And I use the stats from that saying, hey, I want to go legit. And so I've always had a love for the internet and music and stealing music. <laughs> I think I'm like past the limited statue for that. I delete all that anyways, wink, wink. But, um, <laughs> but, you know, I used that to get in. They said, if you can keep your grades up and then I just obsessed about it. But the, what it was then was, you know, people thought like, oh, social media, it's your lunch. It's your this. You, why do you want to share so many things? And you know, from that phase of just not understanding what was possible with these tools, um, you know, the, there was companies that passed on the telephone 
with Alexander Graham Bell saying, yeah, we don't see the need for this. You know, there, there was train company, right? Like they were like, there's no business use for this. And that's, I think what people looked at social media, very similarly to telephone. They're like, oh, there's no business use for this. This is just for, you know, just, you know, doing nothing. And I was going to use a different term there, but, <laughs> and, and, and I think what, what I've seen over the early years is it went from people just having fun with it, not really serious business around it, to people starting to build business around. And specifically with social, it, was, it, it became that thing again, too, with like influencer marketing. It wasn't an official thing, but people started doing deals. People started sending products and seeding stuff. And I think now we're in a much more professional setting. And I'd argue in this, in, in I, you know, everyone's got phrases for it. I call it the digital asset economy. I think we're now at a point where businesses are professionally, and you, you, you know this more than I do and your listeners do, are professional organizations on creating digital assets. Like their entire business is on creating products to be consumed over social. And what we do is just now is just uh, provide valuation for it. But um, it's that entire process of understanding the value of digital content. I think that's been really formulated over these years. Yeah. And that's what's kind of led you to your current venture. So I'm curious, how did you meet your co-founder and what was the original inspiration behind Zoom? Yeah. So originally, um, you know, it was back in, in the Georgetown days, I was at a bar, Clyde's and Tyson's no longer there, but uh, basically giving advice on what people should be doing with their social. And one guy heard me, it was their, my co-founder's cousin. And uh, he was like, oh, you got to meet Ali. Ali is doing this with the government you need to you need to talk to them so i come and check it out and i didn't want to work with the government it seemed slow it seemed boring it seemed not like not really cool but it was a you know a steady gig with good pay and so it was an agency called metrostar systems and we basically uh would look at speeches before during and after the, you know and with the state department and understand the impact that it made in the Arab Spring and different countries. And that was really cool, like just using it and, and, and the government definitely saw the value of what social media could achieve through democracy and through diplomacy. And so, you know, we started with that, but then there was like asked that they would give that there was no tools to do what we needed to do. Mm. So um, one of my other partners on the project, Nick Cronin, uh, who's my, there's three co-founders, me, Ali Manicherry, and Nick Cronin. He was, uh, we, we started talking to some of the developers that were near us in the agency and we got them to help us on a project. And uh, first request was, hey, can you guys move all the non-political people off of this? And no joke, James, we had a report that had Justin Bieber, because we were using cloud at the time as the number one influencer. And, you know, it's, he just mentioned the right words that appeared on the list. And we're like, okay, one, we, we can't submit a report to the State Department with Justin Bieber, right? At that time, he was like a pubescent teen, he like yep. some pop music. Sure. Secondly, he's Canadian, right? Like, uh -huh. so like, you know, and, and, and we created this thing called Z Points at the time. And it was just basically, uh, before that, it was all manual. We just like took everyone off and they were like, we love it, do it again. So then we convinced one of the developers to work with us on this. He had free time. And uh, we basically automated a way of uh, looking at engagement and we created a weighted algorithm around it and based off your search terms. So it was contextual and they loved it and they started telling other people about it. And Ali, it was the C uh, he still is the CEO of MetroStar Systems, uh, heard about what we were doing because the State Department was like, yo, this, this team here is doing some great stuff. And uh, you know, sat us down and he gave us access after that conversation to nights and weekends to the office. And we could use, you know, all the, you know, whatever we needed to do, um, unpaid of course, but if we got it to a point where, you know, we would get customers, he gave us a, his word that he would spin it out, we would be co-founders and we could run this thing outside of the agency. So that created this obsession where, you know, my entire existence was like up until that point with grad school was like, as soon as it's done, I'm going to go work for Instagram. I'm going to get a verified handle and life will be good. But, uh, and then after that, it was just this obsession with uh, these APIs that these different platforms give. And then how can I relay that? So in the beginning, it was like all stuff I needed to do. Mm -hmm. And it was just an intoxicating feeling about, working with a team to deliver things that you wish you could do on these platforms. 
Um, and then it slowly evolved into like listening to our customers and what they needed. And it just, uh, and I'm sure you know how it is. It's, it's a cat and mouse game with these APIs. Yep. But it's amazing once you, once you kind of figure out some things that you can do. And then it, when they start, like we had Twitter government working with us at one point, like sending clients to us. And that was just the ultimate, you know, we were, you know, essentially they were paying us to use their product to help them achieve more out of it. And, and that was just the best feeling. That's amazing. So how did you guys cross from working primarily in the public sector to going more private sector and then deciding to focus on sports? Yeah, so when, uh, that's a really great question. So uh, basically when we first started, we were like, okay, we're gonna do this. And, and Ollie was like, this is never gonna work in federal. This is never gonna work in public because what you guys are doing is a little too advanced for what the rest of them, now it's different like they're moving a lot faster and it's really exciting to see what they're doing in that space uh, and i have a lot of friends and it's really cool but uh one of the first deals that we signed was with monumental sports and at that point it wasn't just sports and entertainment it was just anything private business and we had clients from uh you know everything from we did stuff with uh what was it maybelline the makeup company to uh uh, uh, HP and their, uh, in, uh, basically their like internal, uh, careers, um, function. And basically what we had created at that point was we did a couple projects and one was we did a, uh, Twitter wall with president Obama mm -hmm. and he was in the university of Indonesia and we would take in questions via tweets and we would visualize it on a visual. And then we started doing stuff where we, for the Washington Capitals, we would do a game day hub where we would pull all this content, you can moderate it and it would appear on their website. What happened was it was really cool, but people would turn you off as soon as the campaign was done. And that was incredibly frustrating, but you can't compete with that. So then we realized, okay, we are generating a huge bump to these people whenever we do any of these activations. We need to track it so we can show them so they can continue to use it. And we kept doing that and we kept focusing on the analytics and we were starting to get some traction where people were looking at us differently, not just an event-based company, um, but the analytics in itself. Uh, but we started signing up sport team after sport team because of that visual activation that we would create, it would go in the center hung or the center field, depending on what sport it was. And it would generate, you know, through a hashtag, a lot of engagement. So that's, you know, it kind of came to us. We, we still have a lot of legacy clients in that space. We don't talk about our activations just because it's, it's like that secret, like you can only know about it if you have access to a platform, but it, it was a key component because it made us build the product to be real time in everything that we did. And with all the business that we had that was event related, and it was tough. I mean, we like we would have the New York Marathon as a client, you gotta get up at 4 a.m. with them. Maybe not as tough as for the runners, right? But like, <laughs> you know, the event business yeah. is tough. You know, like sure. you know, a lot of credit to people there, but uh, you know, we just focus on the listening side and that started pulling us in a different direction. And then um, we brought on this gentleman who came from a different company that focused on NLP and, and, and looking at language and how can we start automating sentiment, right? How can we start automating, um, you know, classifying groups of people based off what brought them into this conversation. And, and then that kind of opened up a new opportunity for us in audience analytics. And I saw some of your prior episodes was focused so exclusively on audience. And that's such a core component because, you know, turning these audience into communities is really where creators are making their value making mm. their money and especially for sports you know that relationship that fans have with these teams james is stronger than most people in their religion right and it's like there's more people on twitter than there is on church on a sunday and not to offend anyone right yeah but like you know it's it's that connection and people like they're wearing the logos and they're like, this is me, this is my crew, this is what we do. And so it was, it was just fascinating, like looking at those audience analytics and, and basically what we created at that point was we're pulling people in and we were grouping them based off ways that social media wouldn't allow you to normally group people. We anonymized it, you know, from the very beginning, we we're like, hey, fans are the oxygen of sports, you know, like we have to do it with utmost privacy by design. 
And what we did was uh, we looked very simple stuff in the beginning. Like in my bio, it says rookie dad, lucky husband. Because it says dad, you can bucket me into parents. You can bucket me into married because of husband. And so there, we started looking at all these different ways. And, and it was more sophisticated than that, right? But um, now it's like, hey, if they're mentioning any of these breweries and we have like every brewery in the system, or I swear we're not alcoholics, but like if you have Saison or IPA or if you have homebrew and you're by it, like we're looking at all these ways that are either verbal or nonverbal that people express themselves uh, on these platforms and we group them accordingly. So now it's not the impressions and engagements just as a number in itself, but who are the impressions coming from? Who are the engagements coming from? And then that gives, you know, sports and entertainment and esports the ability to now articulate it's it's not just a fan. It's a fan that's, you know, these are millennial moms uh, or these are fans that are families engaging, watching these esport games together or whatever it might be. And when you're looking at different properties as a brand of where to invest, now you can change the conversation from quantity with how many followers that you have to quality to say like, hey, we align to your target audience. This is why you should invest in us because we have the highest quality in this market. And so, you know, that entire shift to get there, it sounds like a small amount of time, but it was a lot of failure. It was a lot of tears. It was a lot of frustration. What we've learned over time is it's not how hard you work, it's how quickly you, you learn. And you can severely decrease that uh, downtime of between when you're not learning, when you get knocked down, if you just get right back up. Mm -hmm. So we're constantly like pushing on those barriers of what's possible, uh, finding those points of failure, and then systemically filling it, right? Love it. So Let's talk more about that, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I totally empathize with the, loving the adrenaline rush of the early days of the startup, but also, you know, some of the, the grind elements of just figuring things out in the early days. So tell me for you, what did you find to be the hardest part of being a first-time founder? Yeah, it's, uh, I would say time, right? It's just the amount of time that you want to invest in knowing that some fires will burn longer, right? That, that you can physically, uh, or, or not even physically, but metaphorically put out, right? And so it's picking your battles and knowing that every, dis you know, every idea is a good idea. What is the optimal idea for this moment? And all of that can change within a second. And, you know, one of the best skill sets for an early founder, I, I would argue, is adaptability because you're constantly adapting. You know, it's like, you know, uh, right before Cambridge Analytica, right? It was a crazy time. There's a lot of things that you could get from some of these different platforms. And so if you didn't have internal principles of like, we're going to do this, we're not going to do that, it was very easy to, to you know, uh, leverage these platforms in every way possible. But then when they change rules, then you're out of luck, right? So it's like, how do you, how do you bet on what is the right thing to build on? And, uh, you know, for us, it was just having some guiding principles as an organization ourselves. But when they, you know, when they took away a lot of the API features that they had, everyone's API broke. And that's a frustrating moment for any founder, right? Or at any point of an organization, because you're like, wow, man, I've built my entire system, you know, connected to this API and they just, they don't care about the ecosystem as much and, and, and they didn't give a heads up, but they were reacting to a situation where someone, you know, negatively, but those elements happen all the time where a system mm -hmm. change, environment changes, and you've got to adapt to fix it. We've come to an understanding now that we embrace that. We love that because when the world gets knocked down, if you're the first to get up and run, you're going to run that new world. So we, you know, it's very similar to a pandemic, right? I'm sure there's a lot of people listening that might have had their entire situation flipped upside down. And it's nothing they could have done. They could have had the best product, the, the best team, the best everything. But the, the, the situation doesn't fit for what their audience needs at the moment, what's critical to them. And so it's in those moments, you just have to figure out how to pivot. And we pivoted our product. If you told me today, like, you know, we're focused on partnership analytics, I would have been like, what the hell? Like, how the hell did we get there from where mm -hmm. we started? But, at the, you know, we just focused on listening to our customers, learning, 
solving challenges and, and we just go every meeting that we have with them we're like what is your biggest challenge sometimes it's like hey that's not for me that's for jesus <laughs> you need to you need to figure that out outside <laughs> of it right. but but and then sometimes it's stuff that we can figure out and, yeah. and, and help them solve and i'm sure you you've inc- you've encountered this quite a few times yourself very much right? the same in our business right totally uh a lot of the things that you said resonate from you know keeping up with the platform api changes to the key to resiliency being being the first to be reactive to those changes and then listening to the market, listening to your customers and saying, what should we be building next? What are the things that you're still struggling with? How can we make your life easier? That's the philosophy and the values that we build into our products as well. Love it. Yeah. And it's amazing. You know, we're seeing so many technologies converge right now where there's so many possibilities, you know, the cost of leveraging AI and computer vision today, right? It, it, you know, a couple of years ago, there was no way you would just come out with a, an invoice that's like, there's no way I'm going to pay that much to, to run AI through my content. Now, there's so many AI platforms that are out there. There's so many technologies that are out there. There's, you know, everything from holograms to 5G to, you know, just stem cell. I mean, like, and I know I'm going way off topic here, but it's just we're getting to this point where the future is, and there's a really great book around this. It's Pierre Diamandis. I might be mispronouncing his last name, but it's called The Future is Faster Than You Think. But we're, you know, we're basically riding these surfboards on these different technologies, you and I, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners. And we're looking at what can we assemble together that can deliver something today, but it's constantly changing, like you said. And yeah, and, uh, it's and the rate of change is accelerating, right? Because we're building on the past successes and creating these new technologies. And so you think about the barriers to entry of starting a new business, right? 20 years ago are fundamentally different than they are today because it's so easy to, you know, legally organize your business, to uh, launch a tech startup. You don't need to host your own infrastructure or set up your own servers anymore. You can do it on AWS or Google or, you know, Microsoft Azure. And then, yes, there are these like really incredible quant cloud computing resources you can take advantage of machine learning through these providers. You don't have to have all that expertise in house. So that's allowing us to innovate uh, faster and faster than ever before, which is really exciting. Well said, James. I mean, we re- we truly are standing on the shoulder of giants, and those shoulders are changing every second. And it's uh, and you know, it's it's what can you assemble together? What can you deliver the most value on? And how can you create as much IP around it and bring something original? Is is really the name of the game and uh, you know, just converting these into ones and zeros. Whatever is a manual process that you can convert over is the surest way of you know, replacing human hours with a product is, is the best way you can deliver any value. And you know, that's where we're actively sort of searching for around our domain is like, how do we do that? And, and like you said, it's, it's a never ending quest. It's you're constantly evolving, you're constantly shifting, but um, to do that, you need to just always have your finger on the pulse. Uh, it's terrible. Sometimes I have like no idea what's going on in the real world, right? With like politics and stuff like that. Um, you know, there's a but when it comes to like my domain, there's like not a thing that goes by, right? That you're and uh, you know, it's listening to podcasts. Like everyone should pat themselves on the back for listening to this podcast, not just because it's a five star rated podcast, right? <laughs> but because it's and people should rate review and put a five star right now. But because you're listening, you're learning, you're you're adapting, and you're you're consuming from other people that touch your vertical or your space, right? In this mm-hmm. case, video, right? But like it's it's all about constantly learning and constantly speeding up that process of understanding and learning what else you can do better. Yeah, big time. So one of the things I wanted to get your perspective on, given you sit at this unique intersection of sports and social media, right, is it occurs to me that social media may have fundamentally changed the way that we consume sports, right? Not just in terms of like creating these second screen viewing experiences, but also in the way that you know, traditional sports are played. We'll talk about esports and professional gaming in a minute. But if you think about like basketball, right, from my childhood up until today, I think of like, you know, the Chicago Bulls. And I'm sure at this point, everyone's seen the last dance and like, you know, canonized the 1996 to 1998 Chicago Bulls. But that went from being what felt like a team sport to this sport that's played by superstars. And that, of course, is first exemplified by Michael Jordan. But now today it's, you know, Kobe Bryant. It's, um, uh, you know, talking about like the success of um, uh, these new superstars 
that sure. are growing up. And you think about the high school athletes who are growing up and having this big presence on social media. And it feels like that's allowing fans to have this more direct uh, connection with these superstars that they love. Do you feel like that's changing the game itself in a fundamental way? Yeah. So I'll make a comment that's not related to that. And then I'll okay. connect it back in a second. But like, so my Twitter handle is at Zenozi. That's my last name, right? And the way I think about it is like Zenozi first of its kind, right? Like it's the very first in the digital world. Like people will be able, my, you know, my kids' kids, you know, granted, you know, Twitter keeps it, what it's doing correctly, but like could look back and see my digital footprint of what I'm doing and what I'm saying. And we never had this ability. Like you, you hear like personal stories of Michael Jordan. You're like, no, nah, I don't want to hear that. That doesn't, that's not my MJ. Right. But like uh, they had the advantage of living their lives in privacy and not being able to, you know, do certain things. And, and but nowadays you see an NBA player tweet something or put an Instagram story up and, you know, with James Harden, it was just a bottle of water and a bottle cap. And everyone's like, what does this mean? Right. For, for his free agency. And so it, you know, it's never been at a time where athletes have had more influence than today uh, because they own the plat. They don't own the platform, but they have a platform to speak on that they can circumvent media and talk directly to their fan base. That helps a lot of people. That is also a detriment to a lot of people. And so, you know, like uh, Dwight Howard tweeted out, like, you're going to be a Lakers, you know, could never leave. And then he signs, you know, with the 76ers uh, mm -hmm. an hour later. So, you know, it is fascinating to watch that connection, like you said. And I grew up during that time, like, watching on WGN with uh, my parents and just <clears throat> my whole family for the Chicago Bulls. I used to play basketball. I've been the same height since sixth grade. So like uh, I went from center to, to, to point guard very quick, but they always call me Tony Kukoc because I was like the only uh, foreigner on the court. So I have, I have a special connection to all that for sure. Nice. But uh, you know, and, and so you said we're going to talk about esports. I think, you know, a lot, a little bit of, um, and for those that are interested in this dialogue, sports innovation lab, there's a little uh, diatribe on this and, and thought but they call it the fan fluidity model where fit, you know, fans are now being attracted more to athletes. They're following Kevin Durant. They're not so much a Thunder fan or a Warriors fan and now a Nets fan. Mm -hmm. They're just a fan of Durant. And yep. so what's interesting about this is uh, a lot of people speculate that this was influenced through one, the progression of the NBA game towards China, right? And, and going international. Because uh, a lot of storytelling in, in, in the Chinese culture is focused on a singular hero instead of a team. Mm. And so um, that aspect has also been uh, exemplified through esports, where it's a lot about a, a certain player that mm -hmm. they get attracted to, not the team per se. Well, and, and now so we that, also have fantasy sports, right? So you think about like fantasy football, which is encouraging fans to follow along the success of individual players rather than the team, right? It's kind of deconstructing these individual, these team elements into individual elements. And isn't it like, this is like a Jurassic Park, uh, you know, I forget the guy's name, Jeff Goldblum's like character, right? Yeah. Like chaos theory. Like, I mean, this is a new sport on top of another sport, right? It's a fantasy football uh, consumer is completely consuming a different game than mm -hmm. someone that is following a certain team that was handed down to them, you know, from their father's father's father, mother's mother's mother, right? And so, you know, there's that, that connection there. And you're absolutely like, God, that was such a good comment. You nailed it. Because it, it is fascinating to kind of see that change and focus on the athletes themselves. I, I think this is only gonna continue uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see how deals are going to be struck um, with athletes in the near term future. Are they going to start incorporating their social as a part of the deals that they do make, right? Because the if you look at the influence and impact that athletes have, you know, you see a post from Giannis, right? Uh, when he when he posts, you know, something about his game or where he is, the amount of engagement, like completely. Uh, overshadows what the Bucks have created, and they might use his likeliness or his image on the content itself. Mm -hmm. And so this brings this whole new aspect to NIL too, that I'm sure you, you've been uh, keeping your eyes on. And and you know, I think it's great for college athletes to finally have a source of income. I think this is really gonna uh, really take the you know 
digital asset economy to a different level. Yeah. I don't think every athlete is really going to be able, like they call it 15 seconds of fame for a reason, because most people don't know what to do with it when it hits them. And it is, you know, when you have attention and attention, I think is the oldest currency in the book of all currency. Right. And it's like, when you have it, not a lot of people know how to sustain it and grow wealth like grow attention and kisses. And I'm not talking about like Kanye going for a presidency. I'm talking about like people that are able to continuously deliver and bring value to their fans by that sustained attention that they do have. For us, you know, like for me, that's an obsession of understanding what that attention is worth. How does it dynamically increase and decrease over time? And how does it, you know, apply? But at the end of the day, I think the most valuable asset anyone can ever create is is an audience, is a fan group, is a community. And, you know, athletes have been really great at creating these for themselves and, uh, you know, their engagement and, and their ability to share their, what's going on in their personal life is, you know, you look at Matisse Thibel. I mean, like he walked into that bubble, no one knowing him. He walked out with a hell of a lot of deals, a YouTube channel that's thriving, mm-hmm. Twitter and Instagram, and he's using it for a social cause. It's, uh, it's everything you want to see. Yeah. We're seeing that convergence for a lot of people, right? LeBron James streaming with uh, Twitch star Ninja, you know, a few years ago to, you know, I'm a big USC football fan. So Juju Smith-Schuster, who goes on to play in the NFL and um, becomes this personality, right? Has an Adidas shoe. He's a Twitch streamer. He's posting on all these social platforms. So the, the smart ones are building their personal brand, developing an audience, and then thinking about, okay, what do I do on the field? What do I also am I doing around my social strategy, around my brand identity, around merchandise, consumer products, right? It's thinking about the personality almost as developing IP, right? And, and I guess it comes back to like Michael Jordan, again, as the example of, okay, he, he did all this with endorsements in the era of television, taking broadcast media to, to a next level. But now we're seeing the next generation of athletes and stars doing that with social media and building personalities and building kind of these dynasties set at, at a new level. Yeah, Juju. I mean, his dog's got more followers than I can ever dream of, right? <laughs> and what's right. crazy, I'll, I'll tell you, like, you know, he's got such a knack for it, not and not just because he's got great moves on TikTok, but because, uh, you know, there's this, um, I'm blanking on the amusement park in, in Pittsburgh, and I'm mm. blanking on its name. Somebody's going to know what it is. Yeah. But they switched from Heinz Ketchup to Hunt's. Right. And in Pittsburgh, that's like a big deal. Yeah. He showed up to that amusement park and handed out packets of Heinz ketchup to people. Right. <laughs> and like, that's insane. Like, I mean, like how, how did not like, I mean, to, to be a localized like celebrity is one thing, but to be the hero of the people, like you yeah. said, I mean, that's just, uh, you know, he's got a knack for that. And somebody like that there, you know, th- there's so many opportunities ahead of them and what they can achieve with uh what they do and i think he's a member of phase as well yeah that's right yeah he's been doing a lot of stuff with the phase group so uh. yeah and and esports are smart they realize that by uh engaging in and bringing in these mainstream athletes it's creating a growth channel for them to get in front of people that don't play league of legends or don't play counter-strike right and but they might love football and Mm -hmm. Um, you know, by bringing them in, it, it brings a, a, a revenue model too to increase their growth and reach by having more people, you know, watching and engaging with their content. Yeah, I think one of the early misconceptions around esports was that oh, it's going to attract a similar audience to traditional broadcast sports. Which, look, there's a market for that. You know, there are FIFA's a title, Madden is you know an esports title that people enjoy watching. But when you really think about the core kind of diehard esports community, it's, you know, first person shooters like Counter-Strike, it's these battle royale games like League of Legends, or excuse me, like like PUBG and uh, Apex Legends. And then, yeah, it's these um, kind of hardcore traditional esports titles like League and Dota, et cetera. So um, there is audience overlap there, sure, but you're, you're going to be introducing a whole new audience segment. You're building a new you know, vertical as a result of the growth of esports, in my opinion. I mean, is that what you guys see in the audience data? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, you nailed it. Um, you know, these virtual sports bring a certain type of gamer, right? And then, you know, these more like the MOBAs and, and like, you know, you say like it goes down in the gulag, you and I, you know, like if you're a Call of Duty player, you know exactly what that means. Yep. And it's a totally different uh, group 
it's um, and that's why Twitch as a platform is so engaging and entertaining for brands because you're reaching the group that you have never been able to reach before, right? That 18 to 34 year old group, male group. There's a lot of females on there too. Don't get it wrong, but like primarily that's what they're thought of when you're thinking of Twitch. Yeah, they, that's where they are. And previously you might have found some of them in Reddit, but not all of them. And and um, but it's definitely an interesting opportunity. And, and what we try to specialize with this audience analytics is understanding if you take these two overlapping audiences, and for those that can't see, I'm doing a very terrible Venn diagram, like what does that percentage in the middle look like? And what are those things that connects them and brings them together more than what separates them? Mm -hmm. And if you can understand those, then you can start uh, looking at how to increase your reach and brand. Like, for example, if I'm, you know, trying to bring a new gamer or creator onto my esports organization team, I'm going to want to do an overlap analysis to understand, am I doubling down on the same audience I'm, I've been in front of? Or is this giving me access to a new audience that I haven't reached before? You know, I, I don't think film is, is using this, but, you know, they, sh it, it, they might be thinking about it, but you put the Kevin Rock I'm sorry, Kevin Hart and The Rock together in a film. Like, who's that third character? Is it, you know, is it, uh, what's his name? Jack. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of the that. Comedian, uh, Jack Black. Jack Black, that's right. Yeah, yeah sorry. It's it's like whenever you want to say someone's name, it's when. <laughs> it immediately like, leaves your mind, yep. Yeah, but he, that, Jack Black brings a certain group, right? That totally. probably The Rock and Kevin Hart would not have. And like, yeah. who are other people that you can assemble around them? It's, it's it's a principle that is being practiced and used, but there hasn't mm -hmm. been a lot of granularity and data around it. It's and always I been think, estimated, right? Panels and surveys and Nielsen and Comscore data, but it's, it's just estimates. Whereas the, the benefit of digital is there's perfect measurement, right? You do have true absolute numbers of which audience is watching what pieces of content or following which star. I, I, you know, everyone says you're, uh, James is so smart, but that it was why James is so smart. He <laughs> nailed it, right? Because people are self-disclosing this data all the freaking time. Look yep. at your bio. Look at my bio. We tell people what they're getting, right? Just right off the bat, right? Mm -hmm. We do it instinctively. People want to share, want to care. I don't need a survey that's got some kind of, you know, uh, I'm going to put whatever out to get whatever gift or carrot that's at the end of that stick mm -hmm. and then get it six months later. No offense to survey data, panel data and stuff like sure. that, syndicate data, but it's, there's so much value there by uh, what you do and don't do. You know, I've always wanted to do like a, you know, there's a, uh, I never went and got my master or I'm sorry, my doctorate, but like w if I would have done a thesis, it would have been like, by looking at how people engage with you physically versus digitally, right? If I go and do certain things on social, mm -hmm. how would people treat me in the real life? I, I would bet that people would trust the digital person more than the physical person. Oh yeah. What they're Cause there's inherent like bias in the way that we reflect ourselves. I'll give you a bit of a silly example, but I have a good friend and uh, you know, if you ask him, what are your top five favorite bands? He'll tell you, Oh, I love Metallica. And, you know, he'll go down the list. But if you look at his Spotify data, right? One of his most listened to bands is Nickelback. And, you know, there's a wow. lot of stuff online. People pile on and hate on Nickelback, but they're a yeah. incredibly best-selling band. They've got a lot of catchy songs, right? If we admit it. Yeah. And it, it's, it's funny that, you know, for whatever reason, he won't mention that Nickelback is one of his favorite, top five favorite bands. But if you look at the data from what, he, what does he listen to the most, that's what's reflected. It is so funny how, uh, how people like hide these certain, I mean, maybe, maybe it's calm. You're like, Amir, of course they do. You know, it's like, there's a stigma around that, but you, you're absolutely right. The data doesn't lie. People are, are, are posting and talking about this. Like uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, it, 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 it's hilarious. You know, I think back, there was this one song back in, this is like before, you know, Napster and stuff was all kicked off. It was like a boys to men's. No, I'm sorry. It was a Backstreet Boys song. Mm -hmm. Someone told me it was uh, Stevie Wonder. And like, I, I'm a dumbass. I didn't know it was like multiple singers. I thought it was one. Sure. I was like, I really like this song. And someone like exposed that it was Backstreet Boys. And I was like, no, no, no. But like <laughs> my Spotify data would have would have shown that. And, That's right. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, you know, there was an ad by Spotify just, you know, not too long ago, a couple of years ago. It was, a, it was an outdoor sign. And it was just like, you know, uh, in the in the early '90s, UB40, and it's like 
uh, I'm, I'm butchering it, but like basically the, it, there's so much. And then not just that, James, it's like what you're listening to in the moment exemplifies mm-hmm. your emotion, like the beats per minute. For like sure. If you're listening to like, you know, uh, you know, just this, you know, Sarah McLaughlin. It's it's like a a, a puppy don't nonprofit video. <laughs> you're not gonna buy a ticket to go to Vegas, right? Yep, but if you're yep. listening to Tiesto and you're uh-huh. like, you know, into it, and yep. and a and a Vegas app popped up there or Miami, you're more likely to convert on that too. So it's sure. how to be useful using this data at the right time. Hundred percent critical as well. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about sports. We've talked a little bit about esports and the audience dynamics there. I also want to get your take on politics, given social media has fundamentally changed the way that we interact with politicians, political issues. I mean, this has been demonstrated perhaps no better than Donald Trump, right? I mean, in many ways, he saved Twitter. If you think about where was Twitter at, you know, pre-2015, 2016, uh, in many ways, he's, he's rejuvenated the platform. You, you look at some of these new social media stars like AOC, right, who's who's built this really incredible connection with her constituency as a result of using social media. So there's some power there in terms of creating this closeness, maybe creating more responsiveness and, and feeling of uh, uh, association with your constituents and that you have a responsibility. That's, it's a lot more public now. It's easy for people to track the political issues they care about. Have you seen that reflected in the work that you do and having experience in the public sector and also you know, being in DC, kind of being around this environment all the time? Yeah, no, I mean, it's uh, so a couple of years ago, we made a conscious decision to not take any more political or, or public related clients. Yeah. Um, specifically after Cambridge Analytica, mm-hmm. uh, we saw the power of it before and we wanted to focus on the good of it. But then when you see like what the negative connotations can be done in, resu- in result of it, we're like, hey, we're trying to build a long lasting business. So we're going to stay away. But that is the that is the power of social media. You can mm-hmm. talk to millions uh, instantly once you create a platform for yourself. And you know this might come uh, unpopular or not, but Donald Trump is one of the greatest brands that is out there on social. He's mm-hmm. consistent. He's authentic. It's him, right? Yep. In all caps and, and misspellings and whatever it might yep. be. And, and uh, I, I did a feed analysis on him and I just looked at his analytics and it's like, you can tell his activity between like four to 6 a.m. is usually in its highest. So if you wanted to get him to notice your content, that would be the best time to kind of publish around there, mm-hmm. Eastern time, because you know, he's sleeping in the White House. But like, uh, and then you use the top words that he kind of mentions and it's great and it's this and it's that. But like, there's uh, there's a lot you can tell from just looking at someone's activity and how they connect with their audience, right? And what are the things that they're trying to get across? But all it takes is one retweet from one of the, you know, AOC or, or Trump to be a fan for life, right? It's like, I had the, you know, the, the New York Giants client, um, you know, they retweeted me once for something I said, and that took years of the Washington football fandom on hold for just a second, right? Where I was like, oh my God, they know I exist. And they're like, they're a client. Like they, of course they know I exist. Sure. But like the fact that they did that is, it's just like, we're listening, you matter. And so with social listening right now, there's so much that you can obtain um, about what an audience cares about and knows what they want to hear. Um, I won't say the team name, but like they had a player that demanded a trade and I mean, like it happens every day now, but sure. they were like, how do we get, th-? there was so much sensation around this from the media content. So we filtered, we created an audience and we filtered by it. And we said, this is the super fan of this sports team, right? They listen to this podcast and they listen to, you know, all this, you know, they follow these accounts, you know, if, if this is what makes this audience who they are. Uh, and we filtered the conversation around that trade by that audience. And now the team had the blueprint to win the heart of that audience, right? Because they only cared about their super fans. That is who spends with them. That is who they live and die by. So when they spoke on the podium, you know, that group was sitting there and saying, they get it. They get me. I love this group. They they know what they're doing. But all they were really doing is uh, doing what they normally would have done, but they just put it in the framework and answered the questions based off what they knew their audience wanted. 
Now, if you can, the more, you know, we have an internal saying around niche, you know, information uh, segments, and we say niches get riches. And like, the more you can segment a group and understand what they care about to personalize yourself and the topic to them, the more influential you can be in getting them to strengthen that relationship with you and engage back with you. So it's, it's paramount that whether you're AOC or, you know, um, the West Michigan, uh, you know, um, you know, like a, a, a minor league baseball team, right? Like it doesn't matter what group you are, as long as you understand what your fans care about and what brought them, you know, your audience, because there's no homogeneous audience. It's not just one group. It's multiple different groups. And if you master what each group wants and you water a little bit of each plant, you know, you're going to grow an audience over time. And uh, that's what, you know, politicians are using today. They realize the importance of social and the impact that it does to influence people in the right or wrong way, depending on what they need. Um, but it's, uh, it, it's fascinating. And what's going to be fascinating too, James, is just looking back at the historic content. Like uh, I, I went and I deleted like a bunch of tweets, not because I did something wrong. Right. But it's like, I don't even know what I was sharing back then. So like, you know, it's very scary that someone can bring something up. Uh, when, when that one athlete got tr- uh, uh, drafted to the Lakers and he called Kobe Bryant, like, you know, a rapist and all this stuff for oh. the past stuff he did, the journalist found that and brought it up, you know, and, oh. and, and, and you know, he, he might not no longer feel that way, but mm-hmm. once you say something in the past too, and I yep. think that's going to be an interesting, when that type of technology is easier for the average person to understand, I think that's going to be a very important aspect to align to what your current vision is versus what it might have been in the past. And I think that's where politicians need to worry about because yep. that online reputation management, right? Exactly. Yep. Nailed it. Especially when everything you've ever done is preserved, you know, in text and video, right? It's all on the internet. That, and, and that's why I'm team no edit button. I, I know there's uh, at one point, whenever I make a typo, I'm like, man, I wish I had a button, but I think it's critical. And I think, you know, you know, if you look at Twitter, uh, and that's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a old millennial, right? I got the gray hairs to prove it. Uh, so <laughs> I, I cater to Twitter, mm-hmm. right? I, I'm not as good looking as you, James, so I'll be an Instagram guy. But like, you know, if, and, and so like, if I was, they organize themselves under the news category, right? Yeah. And they do that because, you know, that's where news is happening. That's where Yeah, you want real-time updates and news, politics, sports, right? Those, those categories are perfect, perfectly suited to Twitter. Yeah, and, and that's why if they started allowing editing, you know, that really hurts what their ability to deliver the news, I think, would be. Mm-hmm. And there's so many rules around how you got to do it right. So, I think there's, you know, just even by the rules that these platforms have really shaped the entire society and how they sort of impact. Because like Twitter's service to us, you know, it's free, right? And mm-hmm. we just get some ads. But if they allowed certain things to happen, it would totally change how we view the platform and who it attracts and the type of connections that we have. Yeah. And so what's interesting to me is like all these new platforms that are coming out in new ways, like you know, are we supposed to be dancing to get like that new group of audience? Like it doesn't, no one wants to see me dance. So like, what's the right <laughs> way for me to TikTok? Right? Sure, like, sure. You know, or yeah. is that, you know, no, Amir, don't even get on that platform. Uh-huh. I, I think it's, I think it's all fascinating. Uh, not just how people are leveraging the platforms, but then how these platforms decide on what features they will provide and what features they'll allow developers like you and I mm-hmm. provide more value towards. Because I sure. think the developer you know, ecosystem is critical. And what's coming next? If you had to make a few predictions for the future of the media space, what would they be? Yeah. Um, so for us specifically, like we're fascinated with uh, merging more and more the audience of who's in that conversation and that real time nature of the performance of the conversation. But then also looking at, cause we're in sports and we do partnership stuff like the asset management, was that a jersey patch? Was that a press drop? What is the value of that? So that's like where we are in a very near future of where we are. But as far as social media and, and like where I think what's next and what's coming is, um, I, I think there's more and more organizations that are going to understand the value of the digital assets that they are creating. And video is going to be more important. I think we need to get more better podcast analytics. People consume content in such different mediums. 
And I think there's just like key opportunities there across all of those. Um, but I, I really do think, you know, augmented reality is the, back, is the next smartphone, right? And like, we're not there with AR glasses and I know everyone's got that notion of Google Glass and everything, but I think that's that next technology that is gonna give us that next chapter and then it's, how do we personalize that? Like, I'm going to have AR-related stuff that's an accentuation of my personality that you'll digitally see, much like how I put an outfit on my Call of Duty app, you know, player. I think that's, you know, where it's going to be and how that factors into how we share that would be that sort of next chapter in social. But again, the same principles, attention is the currency that we all live and die by. And then how do we understand that attention, how do we put a value towards it, uh, is really what's going to shape that kind of direction of whatever that platform might be. Yeah. And Amir, if you were starting a business in the digital media space today, knowing everything you know, all the experiences you've had, what would you do? That is such a good question. I, you know, I, uh, I think at the end of the day, it's just being as helpful as possible and understanding, um, you know, that, that layer of, so like, here, here's my thing right now. It's just like, uh, and, I, and I think some, you know, we're kind of getting to that point already, but it's like, I want to meet up with someone. The technology should tell me like, okay, this is the stuff James is into. This is stuff you're into. You guys should probably meet here and order these things. Don't order this because Amir is allergic to it, right? Uh -huh. like, it's just like that That's kind awesome. of stuff. That's like, really clever. Yeah. You know, the, like the, the, the stuff that we have to kind of go through and just uh -huh. kind of pull out of each other. Yeah. The data should... exists. Why not just automate a lot of that? Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, if, if I was to do something today, it's, it's mostly around like how to take away the, I don't want to say the, the nuisances of some conversation, like the small talk, but like how do I make things happen faster and yeah. it's by taking the data that's already there and just making it more actionable when it's relevant. And yeah. I, th I, you know, every AI is trying to do that, but that's where I think, you know, the, the most value could be pro provided today. Amazing. I love it. That's a great yeah. idea. Very cool. Amir, Cheers. where can people, yeah, yeah. <laughs> any entrepreneurs out there, please go build us something. <laughs> so Amir and I know what to do when we hang out. <laughs> exactly. Where can people find out more about you and more about Zoom? Yeah, uh, so at Zenozi on all things social, uh, even, even on Call of Duty, and I'll, uh, and I'll, I'll wreck you with while I'm changing diapers. Uh, <laughs> and then Zoomph is uh, at Zoomph, Z-O-O-M-P-H, uh, on all things social as well, Zoomph.com. So really appreciate you having me here, James. This was a lot of fun. Uh, it's, it's always fun to do these, but it's, all, it's even more fun when you do these when the person on the other end really has a strong understanding of the space. So thanks for the chat. This was a pleasure. Well, thank you. It was absolutely my pleasure. And we had a chance to meet kind of fortunately over LinkedIn. And I just, the first kind of conversation we had, I was like, I love Amir's perspective on the space. I love your philosophy and the values and was just such a joy to get to talk with you and dig a little bit deeper into you know, your background and what you guys are building and the way that you see the world. So thanks again for sharing your story. Yeah. Thanks James so much. And, and looking forward to that next conversation that some entrepreneur listens to and makes easier for us to do. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.